Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Today, we're excited to continue our conversation with Ambassador Bill Burns, the former Deputy Secretary of State and a career ambassador in the United States Foreign Service. Bill has also just released a new book, which is terrific, The Back Channel, a memoir of American diplomacy and the case for its renewal, which details his extraordinary career. Our listeners should note that this is the second part of a two-part series. If you have yet to listen to our first episode with Bill, we would encourage you to check that and out. And you got to listen to that because you won't understand any of this. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, thanks again for Pleasure. being here with us. It's great uh, to be with you both. We had a, a pretty good conversation about Iraq and the ramifications of that. I want to maybe take a step back and talk about what it means to be a foreign service officer with these rotating administrations. Uh, and, and as we've noted in your bio, you worked for multiple presidents, multiple secretaries of state. And it seemed like there was uh, a kind of foreign policy uh, consensus, at least, on the U.S. role in the world. And there were departures and there were diversions and the parties have individual differences. But let's say it was played between the 40-yard the lines. Is that generally fair over the course of your career? I think generally. Yeah. And generally, that's the case. You know, I mean, I was a card-carrying member for many years. I suppose I still am of the Washington establishment. Yeah. I think, but the biggest um, development in recent years, and this has been building for a while, it's not traceable just to the election in 2016, has been a growing disconnect between lots of American citizens and the Washington establishment. I don't. Most Americans, in my experience, don't need to be persuaded of the significance of disciplined American leadership in the world. What they're not so persuaded of is the capacity of all of us across party lines in Washington to produce disciplined choices sometimes. Well, you talk a lot about that in, in the book about how to regenerate uh, the strength of our diplomatic core, not only focusing on the tradecraft, but also reestablishing connections to the American people and Maybe you could say a little bit about that in terms of what, what does that actually mean in, in practice? Well, I mean, there, there are things that I think, you know, professional American diplomats can do. Um, certainly, there are m many more opportunities today to work with governors, to work with mayors who you know, are keenly interested in expanding trade and investment opportunities overseas. And so smart ambassadors and their staffs overseas will spend a lot of time trying to facilitate that as well. Part of this is working the halls of Congress, too, as both of you know very well. Compared to the U.S. military, the U.S. intelligence community, the State Department historically, myself included, has been pretty ineffective sometimes um, in working the Congress, you know, whereas our military or intelligence colleagues would be working the halls and, and saying, you know, you ought to be briefed on this to a member or to staff. You know, oftentimes in the State Department, we were a little more reactive, I think, as well. So th that's an area where we can do more. I think in cases where the State Department or our embassies overseas have played a significant part in a big business deal, right. you know, a big sale of Boeing aircraft or, you know, something else which has had concrete benefits in terms of jobs in the United States, we don't always do a very good job of connecting the dots for, you know, American citizens and American taxpayers mm -hmm. and explaining how that came about as well. So in all those areas, I think there's more that we can do. 
Uh, on the same theme of rebuilding diplomacy, in the last part of your book, Bill, you talk a lot about how to think about that. But you talk about streamlining the institution, some of the bureaucratics of the organization of the State Department, some of the peculiarities of, of you know working and living in Foggy Bottom. But one of the things I, I wanted to ask you uh, more about is the idea of the people it's, you know, in, in the organization itself. As Rich talked about in the earlier episode, you know, we've had a massive departure of some of the best and brightest. And, you know, we have to think a little bit about when we consider rebuilding diplomacy. Really, diplomacy is about people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that different to, in many respects, rebuilding the military, but mm-hmm. to, to really train up uh, a successful diplomat, you could argue, is a years-long mm-hmm. campaign, maybe decades even, really to be effective. So I, I'm ask, I, I want to ask you, how do you do this? Do you do mid-career uh, adjustments? Do you get people coming in from other walks of life? How are we going to rebuild this institution? Well, I think we're going to have to think more creatively and more boldly than we have in the past, at least in terms of the State Department. I do think there's an argument for uh, trying to recreate a system which used to be called mid-level entry into the Foreign Service, both to try to attract back people who may have left or been pushed out over the last couple of years, but also, I think, to bring in people with the kind of skills that are going to be essential for an effective American diplomatic corps in the future. For example, people have experience in the world of technology yeah. as well. And and the only way you're going to be able to do that is to make some adjustments in the sort of normal entry process as well. The parts that I like best about the book were not only the historical recounting of your own remarkable experience, but also this idea of what it takes to be a good diplomat and, and you know, what are the qualities you look for. In part of the book, you describe what you, what you term a crucial trinity, mm-hmm. uh, that what, what, what are the required characteristics of a fine diplomat. And you include in that judgment, balance, and discipline. I couldn't, uh, you know, agree with you more, but I do wonder about one thing. So uh, like Rich, I I had the great good fortune to work at the State Department, not like you, but Mm -hmm. I did come in. I found it a wonderful place to work. It was extremely hierarchical, actually more hierarchical even than the military that I had experienced before. But I also was struck that what I looked for in my more seasoned diplomatic cohort, people I worked with, were all those qualities, to be sure, but also uh, the ability to take initiative. And I was struck that was, for me, where you separated the good from the great. And I'm wondering, you don't have as much in there. In fact, I think I detect in some places what, what you are worried about is overstretch. Uh, taking steps that that get us into trouble by by you know uh, uh, risks that we can't back up subsequently. Where are you on that? Well, you got to be able to do both, Kurt. I mean, it's a very fair concern or criticism of the State Department or the career services in that you know, as as we all know, I mean, there are individual diplomats who can be enormously innovative and entrepreneurial. Yeah. The State Department, as an institution, is rarely accused of being too agile or too full <laughs> of initiative, and it and is. It reflects sometimes a sort of passive-aggressive nature of the department. Now, some of that, as you rightly point out, is born of a concern about overreach. And certainly in my own career, having 
you know, uh, learn from my own mistakes in the run up to Iraq in 2003, you know, that's burned into your sensibility yeah. as a diplomat. But you can't, you can't let that make you risk averse because diplomacy, as I mentioned in the case of Bush 41 and Baker, is about a balance between being careful about the consequences of your action and, you know, connecting ends to means. But it's also about seeing opportunities and yeah. then taking risks when they appear, just like on German reunification. So you're right. And that's something that, you know, senior people in the State Department, whether they're career like I was or, you know, who come at it as non-career senior officials like both of you, have to encourage and they have to, when they see more junior or mid-level diplomats, you know, you want to reward that willingness to take some risks every once in a while. if we can uh, go around the world a little bit and, mm -hmm. and cover some of the uh, hot spots and spots you have uh, worked on over the course of your career. There's a great chapter about the Iran negotiations uh -huh. and yeah, uh, the back channel discussions that you had in Oman with our, our friend Jake Sullivan, uh -huh. and, and it led to the deal. Of course, we're not in the deal uh, anymore. I wonder if you could just give us your sense of where things stand with Iran and where the United States now stands and, and can we um, revisit re-entry in, into the deal and, and should we? Well, I mean, I think it was a, a, a very big historical mistake for President Trump to have pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. I would be the last person to argue it was a perfect deal, but, you know, perfect is rarely on the diplomatic menu. Yeah, the, the critique was that uh, once the sanctions were lifted, money, hard currency started flowing into the regime and they could do a lot of other kind of uh, bad acts around the around the region. Well, the critique was both that it would, you know, enable the regime to engage in even worse behavior in the region, and second, that it would bolster even further its grip on the Iranian people. Well, the truth is, you know, in the uh, shortly after, um, you know, President Trump, I mean, it was in the summer of 2017, after the nuclear deal had been concluded two years afterward, that you saw pretty significant demonstrations across Iran. Um, and that wasn't because the regime's grip was that much stronger. It was because people having been exposed to the outside world and to connections to it, especially a population 70% of which is in the under, under the age of 30, understood very well that this is a regime that didn't have answers to the questions on their minds. So I didn't buy the first part of that argument. And it's certainly true that Iranian behavior is threatening to our interests, the interests of our friends across the Middle East. The question with regard to the nuclear deal is, did that put us in a better or worse position for mobilizing other countries to push back against that behavior? I would argue that pulling out of the deal puts us in a weaker position to do that. If you look at the record of Iran in the Middle East since President Trump pulled out of the deal, it's hard for me to see that their threatening behavior has diminished in any way. What's diminished is our capacity to work with our European partners to push back against whether it's Iranian behavior to destabilize regimes or it's advanced missile programs or anything else. What's happened is pulling out of the nuclear deal uh, deepened the fissures between us and our closest European allies. In a sense, 
you know, not only eased some of the pressure on Iran, but also did Vladimir Putin's work for him in mm. terms of, you know, uh, deepening fissures in the transatlantic alliance. Hmm. Let me stay on the on the Middle East then and kind of your backyard for, for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are we today, uh, either kind of with uh, the conflict in Syria, the larger state of kind of uh, disrepair and, and mm. with our relations across across the board. What do you, what do you see happening uh, currently with our posture in the Middle East? Well, I mean, sadly, I think the fragilities and dysfunctions of the Middle East are going to be with the people of that region and with us for a long time to come. Um, there's a deep crisis of governance uh, throughout most of the Arab world right now, which was at the core of the revolts that became the Arab Spring. And the truth is, you're going to see a recurrence um, of those kind of pressures unless you have leaderships that address you know, some of that sense of, you know, lack of dignity, lack of political and economic opportunity as well. Um, On top of that, you have lots of regional conflicts between Saudis and Iranians, between Arabs and Israelis that are also unresolved. And a lot of predatory powers either on the edges of the region or outside it are taking advantage, just like the Russians have um, in recent years as well. Furthermore, I think there's a need for the United States, and President Obama recognized this, and in a much different way, President Trump has as well, to change the terms of American engagement in the Middle East, especially when we got you know, lots of other priorities, particularly in Asia right now, too. That doesn't mean abdicate leadership in the Middle East, but it, it does mean, in my view anyway, focusing more on diplomacy and less on purely military means. I don't know if you saw or read Secretary Pompeo's speech in Egypt a few mm-hmm. weeks ago in, in Cairo. And uh, to suggest that he was tough on the prior administration would be uh, would be an understatement. And, and again, somewhat remarkably for me, he went after uh, the president kind of personally and talked mm-hmm. about this man stood before you uh, several years ago, and and America, your longtime friend, was absent. They they were naive. They, you know, gave away the store. They didn't. I, I, I couldn't tell if this was, uh, you know, his his way of suggesting we ab- abandoned Mubarak. Uh, you know, we abandoned our longtime friends. I, I was really struck by the viciousness of mm-hmm. the of the critique. Uh, I don't know what you make of that. I was too, and and I think it's. Um... You know, it's really unattractive for an American secretary of state, let alone an American president, to go overseas and then trash predecessors. Um, I, I think that's not only unattractive, it's not only it's also not smart, because I think if the desired audience for those remarks are a group of authoritarian leaders in the Middle East, at least in large part, I think they tend to see weakness and manipulability mm. um, in those kind of comments, too, when you're criticizing domestic rivals. And also, I think the analysis is off. Yeah, I mean, factually, there were a ton of problems with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a lousy speech, and I think the analysis was off, and I think it was deeply inappropriate to criticize your predecessors in Cairo. But But other than that, I thought it was a great speech. (laughs) There's a larger theme in there that kind of um, of inflicts this administration, which is this kind of love affair with the autocrats. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the impact of that, that that has, uh, not only on our standing, Mm -hmm. but these uh, generally younger or, or uh, kind of democratic forces trying to percolate their way up in, in tough uh, environments. And they essentially get stepped on by the American Secretary of State. 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of complicated trade-offs, as all three of us know, in working with leaderships overseas, you know, some of which are authoritarian to their core, but on whom we depend for lots of things. And any administration faces those trade-offs. I do, however, think it's a profound mistake to think that just indulging those leaderships is going to create a healthy partnership over time. You look at the case of the U.S.-Saudi relationship today, and I think, you know, we, we have not done enough, and I'm not trying to suggest we had a pristine example in prior administrations, but we certainly have not done enough in the last couple of years to make of that significant relationship a two-way street. Mm -hmm. So that we make clear, for example, with the Saudis and their crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, that we'll have your backs against external threats, whether it's from Iran or anybody else. We're going to support wholeheartedly your serious efforts at social and economic reform, but we're going to push back um, in areas where you overreach, whether it's in the region, in Yemen, helping to create a terrible humanitarian and strategic catastrophe, or at home in terms of the repression you know, of lots of peaceful dissidents, and not to mention the murder of Jamal Khashoggi um, in you know, the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. So, Bill, I love the, the recounting of what really was your true back channel, that experience mm -hmm. you had on Iran, and that quote from Zabib in your first meeting with him and when he said, think the big. I, I want to ask you about the, the, the conduct of that diplomacy. You and our colleague Jake Sullivan were the point people in this effort. Often in complex negotiations like that, the most interesting negotiations are not the ones that you do at the table, but the ones back home mm -hmm. where you have to go back into the situation room and convince people that are skeptical that it's worth giving this a shot. What was that like? Who are the people that were saying, hey, I'm not sure we should be doing this or we have to go slower? Did you have to persuade them? Did you have to persuade yourself? You know, um, how did you think about it? Well, there were times, I mean, you know, I was, um, again, like most any negotiation that produces a, a, a result, as in the case of the Iranian secret talks, it looks like it was all foreordained or neat in hindsight. Yeah. It certainly wasn't at the time. And I had my doubts along the way about whether we were pushing hard enough or making the right kind of deals. Um, you know, the, the virtues of that effort were, A, we had built up a lot of leverage ahead of time through the first term of President Obama, went through an unprecedented set of international sanctions and political solidarity. You know, Iran's oil exports had dropped by 50%. The value of their currency had dropped 50%. So it wasn't a coincidence that at the beginning of 2013, the minds of the Iranian leadership were focused. Um, I think, you know, President Obama understood the risks that were involved here, and he he gave us, you know, a fair amount of leeway. I remember when we were going off to one of the more significant of the nine or 10 rounds of secret talks that we had with the Iranians in 2013, he took Jake Sullivan and I aside after a long meeting in the Situation Room. And the totality of his instructions at that point were, well, you guys know what we need to do. Don't screw it up. <laughs> now, that's one of those moments when you wished you had 14 pages of single-spaced instructions because yeah. it's more reassuring then, mm -hmm. too. Um, but, you know, it was a mark, I think, of his willingness um, to take some risks in the process and to understand that we needed to do that to produce an outcome which demonstrated, I think, through diplomacy that you could prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. Uh, Bill, I want to turn your attention to something that both you and Kurt worked on together, which mm -hmm. was the the rebalance, the pivot mm -hmm. um, uh, to Asia. 
And I just stayed uh, out of Kurt's way. Right. It worked better <laughs> right. that way. Yeah. Well, there, there were a lot of exciting moments uh, that you worked on together. Uh, but let me let me uh, first ask you about India, because you write mm-hmm. a fair amount about India. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a, a key part of your vision of the positive that can come mm-hmm. of our, our refocusing on Asia. And I know you worked on the civil nuclear agreement mm-hmm. and issues uh, all the way forward. But give us your sense on the promise of the U.S.-India partnership. Well, Rich, as you know better than anyone, I think the investment that both the United States and India have made over the last couple of decades through administrations of both parties in both countries um, has been um, a very sensible one and a very wise one. This is not aimed you know, solely at the containment of China or at China's rise. It's very much about recognizing India's rise. And it's not about containing China as much as it is, I think, at shaping the environment into which China rises. And I think in that context, U.S.-India partnership is really important. Now, to make that strategic partnership possible, President Bush 43, President George W. Bush, quite rightly and I think courageously recognized that we'd have to get past what had been the insurmountable obstacle, Mm -hmm. which was our differences over the nuclear issue. Um, And we took a risk there. Because the truth is, we were bending the rules of the nuclear nonproliferation regime, partly born of faith that the Indians would act responsibly in terms of how they manage their nuclear program, faith that's been borne out since then, and partly because we saw a wider strategic benefit um, to doing that. But it made for some pretty tough diplomacy. At one point, I think I termed it in the book, brute force diplomacy. Right, I mean, right. There was nothing subtle <laughs> in the nuclear suppliers group where we you know, had to get an approval um, uh, for India and an exemption, basically, from the rules of the group that had applied. And so we had to lean on a lot of our friends and not rest our argument so much on the merits as on the fact that, you know, we needed their support. It was an incredible uh, accomplishment. And how many times when I was in Delhi, I'd get the, well, you know, Bill Burns did this for us back X years ago. Well, I can assure you that some of the people who were telling you were not so confident at three o'clock in the morning in Vienna when they were wondering what they had gotten into with these crazy Americans. I'm glad it worked out. Let me turn um, both of you, actually, I'm going to direct this question to, to Kurt to, and to Bill um, about China. <laughs> and uh, one, a, a policy question, and then two, maybe you could give us uh, a little bit of the backstory about the Chinese dissident as well that, that you write about. Um, but first, the policy question, uh, Vice President Pence has kind of laid down this pretty uh dark portrayal of where we're headed with China, uh, the new Cold War, people have termed it. Uh, I wonder if both of you could just say a little bit about, you know, is that where we have to end up uh, with China? Is that where we should be? And then secondly, uh, again, on the, what was that like the night you got that call from the Situation Room and uh, they told you a dissident had ended up in our embassy? Well, I'll start. Bill was really the model of how to think about China at the State Department balanced, careful, a recognition that really, you know, this is a historical challenge and opportunity. And if we ended up in a in a conflictual, dead-end, 
negative relationship uh, with China, it would be bad for both the United States and China. I think there is a recognition that there is a need for a rebalancing of the relationship and that there are going to be elements in which the United States has to be firmer and clearer about reciprocity and uh, about concerns. But at the same time, I think we would be making a mistake if we did not recognize that there are a number of areas where cooperation and, and uh, working together are essential, uh, Rich, you know, on climate change, on uh, issues of freedom of navigation, piracy, and basically setting the stage for the elements of a successful 21st century. I, I, I wouldn't say that's going to be easy and, and the challenges are enormous, but we are really only at the early stages of building what I would call habits of cooperation mm -hmm. between the United States and China, and that's what we should be involved with. And so I think it would be a mistake for us to lurch towards a um, uh, relentless, dark period of Cold War between the United States and China, because I don't think either country really either wants that or recognizes what some of the real consequences would be, but rather a, a recognition that the world is big enough for both of us to coexist and work together and that we have many areas of common interest. And those are the things that we should focus on going forward. No, I, I agree with Kurt, not surprisingly. Um, and I always admired the work he did on China when he ran the East Asia Bureau. All I would add is that, of course, it's true that the competition between the United States and China is going to be the single most consequential development uh, as far out as I can see into the 21st century. I think the current administration is right <clears throat> to push back on what have been predatory Chinese trade and investment practices. That effort is probably overdue. But I, what I would argue is that defensive approach um, could best be pursued if we did a better job of making common cause with lots of other players in Asia and in the European Union who share some of those concerns, rather than embark on second and third front trade conflicts with them at the same time. And I think that defensive effort has to be coupled with an affirmative strategy um, for painting a picture of a vision of Asia's future in which China's rise doesn't come at the expense of everybody else's security and prosperity. One important element of that on which Kurt worked very hard was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which again, would have provided a framework which in future years, if we had been able to couple it with a similar arrangement with the European Union, you know, would have anchored two thirds of the global economy in a set of high end standards, which inevitably would have shaped the incentives and disincentives that China faced as he thought about its own economic choices. So that competition is going to be sharp sometimes. It's real, and I don't underestimate that. But I do think um, we have a, a strong hand to play, um, you know, if we play it wisely, as you look at over the next couple of decades. Hmm. Bill's book recounts the complex effort that uh, he and I and Secretary Clinton were deeply involved in with regard to the the blind dissident Cheng Wanchen. And, you know, it was uh, an exhausting round-the-clock challenging marathon at which, you know, we I think we we're all worried about what was going to happen to U.S.-China relations. Point that Bill makes in the book, you know, through all the ins and outs, and I can remember in my own experience a very low period 
um, in the midst of the negotiations when Bill arrived on the airplane uh, from the United States and we together went to see um, uh, the vice minister together. I was I was very um, uh, low, very worried about my own performance, and Bill bucked me up and was confident and clear and really sort of injected into the effort, sort of a needed and necessary stability at a at a critical time. But I think what he also does appropriately in the book is recounts um, how Secretary Clinton handled it, and one mm-hmm. of the things that I was most surprised by and most um, pleasantly surprised. It, at no time did she, during this entire difficult diplomatic uh, standoff, have any second thoughts, mm. any misgivings, any questions about the United States. Mm. During a walk that I shared with her, and I think Bill was there as well, when we were walking through one of the gardens at the Chinese guest house, and and I was, you know, worried about my own performance and, you know, what had happened, what had played out. And she said, Kurt, this is a small thing. It's a small price to pay to be the United States of America. It's really uplifting. It was. It was really impressive, too. And I was also struck by, you know, here was a case of diplomacy under real-time pressures. You know, I mean, remember when the deputy chief of mission who was in charge of the embassy in Beijing called then, and you had been on the line with him first, Kurt, to say that this blind Chinese dissident was a 30-minute drive from the embassy. And oh, by the way, we think the Chinese security services are 30 minutes away from him. So this was a case where Secretary Clinton had to make a very quick judgment. And like you, Kurt, I recall her being um, you know, quite calm about the whole thing. Yes. Nor, nor did she do what you know lots of people would have done in that situation and say, let's buck the issue to the White House and yeah. ask for permission. She said, let them know, <laughs> um, which you know I was also quite impressed by. Now, it was less impressive to some of our friends in the White yeah, House. Yeah, so we, we divided up the duties. <laughs> yeah. and I had to deal with the Chinese, but Bill got the White House. We'll have yeah, to which was engage tougher. our friends right. at the NSC. Yeah, they yeah. were not happy. Yeah. Bill, I, I, we're about wrapping up here, but I wanted to ask you uh, one question and try to end on a on a somewhat positive. Um, but the the current um, approach from this administration and and from the president specifically, when it comes to kind of our role in the world, is that the U.S. has basically gotten a bad deal mm-hmm. from its partners, from its alliances, from its trade deals. Better to go it alone than through this mushy kind of weak architecture. In your book, you say, uh, in his view, we were Gulliver, and it's long past time to break the bonds of the Lilliputians being everyone else in, in the world. And, and, you know, so America first, here we come. Yeah. It's a pretty uh, dark view of, of the world and partnerships. I wonder if you could give us the, the flip side of that argument. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that view not right? Well, I mean, I mean, first, first, I mean, I'll, I'll say what I think is right about that view, or at least partially right, and that is that whomever got elected in 2016 was going to have to make a serious effort to change the terms of engagement with some of our closest allies, to improve burden sharing in NATO, um, and with some of our rivals like China, as we discussed before, in terms of trade investment practices. Um, and so, so that part I understand. The question is whether or not um, you embark upon that understanding the ways in which the international landscape is changing. We're no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block. Therefore, 
you know, the asset that sets us apart from lonelier powers like China or Russia are our alliances, our ability to mobilize other countries, our partnerships with countries around the world. It's in the enlightened self-interest of the United States, by contrast to pure America firstism, um, to recognize those assets, maybe to change the terms of engagement with some of our allies and partners and adapt international institutions, but to see those as strengths that'll enable the United States to more effectively play what, as I said before, is a better hand to play right now than any of our rivals. Um, and so that's, but that's a fundamental difference. Because I think, you know, President Trump seems to think that the international order, imperfect as it has been, that we did so much to build and defend for 70 years, is holding us hostage now. Mm. And that liberating ourselves from that is actually a source of strength. I think the opposite. I think it actually squanders what are the inherent strengths of the United States in the world today. Ambassador Burns, Bill, thanks again for joining us for this wonderful two-part series. We've really loved hearing your stories and learning more about your book. Uh, I again want to encourage all of our listeners to rush out and get a copy of the back channel right away. They're flying off the shelves. It's both entertaining <laughs> and instructive about the issues facing the United States today. Yeah, Bill, thank you so much. And again, I, I just say from personal experience, uh, you know, there are all those uh, moments both in the State Department, in Delhi and, and since where, you know, I'd ask myself that question, uh, what would Bill do? What would Bill do in, in this situation? And that's from uh, incredible amount of mentorship and leadership uh, of the department. Ditto here. Thank you guys very much. It's really been a pleasure. So thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.